During the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War, the Organization of American Historians is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. We aim to explore the war from its beginnings through its aftermath. As part of this goal, the OAH is pleased to offer a series of podcast conversations with distinguished historians. During 2012, we are focusing on mobilizing for war. I'm Carl Weinberg, editor of the OAH Magazine of History. Today, we are talking with Kevin Levin. Kevin is a Boston-based history educator and author of the book, Remembering the Battle of the Crater, War as Murder, published by the University Press of Kentucky this year. Before moving to Boston, he taught history at the St. Anne's Belfield School in Charlottesville, Virginia. He has written extensively about the Civil War era, as well as how to introduce the subject in the classroom. You can find him online at Civil War Memory at cwmemory.com. Kevin's article, Teaching Civil War Mobilization with Film, appeared in the April 2012 issue of the OAH Magazine of History. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carl. I'd like to talk to you today about your article, your book, your blog, and your teaching, but first I wanted to ask you a few things about your background. I First, I'd like to know what got you interested in studying and teaching about the American Civil War? Well, I started actually kind of late in terms of, in terms of my interest in the Civil War. I grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey on the beach, and so uh, I was definitely preoccupied with other things growing up, so the Civil War history in general wasn't one of them. But when I was in graduate school in, uh, in philosophy, studying philosophy at the University of Maryland uh, in the 1990s, my advisor lived in Western Maryland out in Boonesboro, close to Antietam Battlefield. And I used to go out there to uh, watch his dogs when he was away. And uh, he suggested I visit the battlefield. And it's still hard for me to explain after all these years, but something clicked uh, on the tour that I, was, uh, that I took um, during my visit. And... Um, I went back the next day, bought a copy of Stephen Sears' Landscape Turned Red, and read the entire book while walking the battlefield, and I've been hooked ever since. Like I said, it's still hard to, to explain why, but um, it is what it is. That's a great book, Sears' yeah. book. So not only did you get interested in studying the Civil War, but you got interest in, in some particular aspects of the Civil War, Civil War memory. Yeah. African-Americans in the Civil War and so on. Uh, can you talk about how you got interested in those kinds of questions? Well, even going back to when I was studying uh, philosophy as a graduate student, I was always interested in sort of how we as individuals, you know, construct narratives as part of, sort of this process of building a, an identity and sort of how we, over time, how those narratives change and, and why. And so I remember I must have been in the bookstore. I probably noticed David Blight's Race and Reunion. And I really hadn't thought about historical memory so much before that. But once I read that, and I believe it came out in 2000 or 2001, I was hooked. It was a way for me to sort of, um, you know, to continue my interest in sort of some of these more abstract philosophical topics, uh, but sort of integrate that into this new uh, discovery, this new passion of mine, which of course is, uh, is Civil War history. And I just started uh, from there. I started with Race and Reunion. And from there, I you know went on to other books. And I discovered in a literature of uh, historians and others who are writing about historical memory. So it really took off in, in 2000, 2001. So I'd like to shift gears and ask you a little bit about 
the article that you wrote for the OAH Magazine of History, the, the article is about using film in the classroom, specifically using film to teach about Civil War mobilization. Now, teachers on the high school and college level use films in all kinds of different ways, sometimes as filler and sometimes more thoughtfully. Can you talk just in general a little bit about what you see as useful and less than useful ways of using film in a classroom? I think what I discovered, unfortunately, was that some of my colleagues and people that I just met through conferences and and other places um, were using Hollywood movies uh, video as filler, or if they were doing anything with it, they weren't going uh, very far in terms of creativity. And so that sort of was an impetus for me to to think of ways to, to try to use it more creatively. And I think coming at history with an interest in memory, I was... I was at the same time interested in, in having my students think of movies as cultural texts, as reflections of, of the society and the time in which they were produced. And so that gave me another level or layer in which to introduce and, and have them reflect on alone or even in groups and through various kinds of projects. And so, you know, it's, it's not as if history teachers, especially in high school, have the time to show movies in their entirety. I think we have our favorites Uh, For me, it's a matter of using them in snippets or short sections, um, and there are a few exceptions to that. So at least for the mobilization article, I chose three movies that give the reader a sense of how uh, historical memory as related to the Civil War, how that has changed uh, over the course of the 20th century. And of course, I chose Gone with the Wind, uh, Shenandoah, and the more recent movie, uh, Glory. Can you talk about each one of those uh, a little bit in, in in those terms, their their connection to, well, mobilizing for the Civil War, but also those questions of historical interpretation, the context uh, of the time in which the film was made, and so on. Maybe first, Gone with the Wind, which in the article you connect with lost cause ideology. Yeah, I mean, Gone with the Wind is is obviously the classic Civil War movie. And you know, even 10, 15 years ago, I still had students, you know, if I asked how many of them have seen this movie, uh, you know, I've got a pretty decent show of hands. That's becoming less the case, uh, which I find kind of interesting. But it's uh, it's a very useful movie uh, to use for any number of reasons. And, you know, I chose it as a way to, you know, at least introduce the, the concept of the lost cause, which, of course, in 1939 is still very much the national narrative of, of what the war was about specifically as it relates to slavery, the cause of the war, uh, reconstruction, and and even uh, mobilization. Uh, And it's useful, I think, in the context of mobilization. There are a number of scenes that that can be used. I mean, the most obvious one is at the beginning uh, in Ashley Wilkes's front parlor room, where they hear they're debating uh, their prospects uh, for victory. And of course, this is when they hear about firing on Fort Sumter and the men rush off to, to join up. And it's a great moment to sort of uh, introduce kids to the, to the initial uh, period of mobilization, specifically the mobilization of bodies. And I always supplement uh, the movies with primary sources and other kinds of sources to, to give them a sense of where Hollywood and history, um, where they meet. I think all, all too often we show these movies and, and kids walk away thinking that this is, uh, this is history. And of course it isn't. But the movie also... Uh, allows you to focus on mobilization uh, on the home front. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, that wonderful ballroom scene uh, where they're raising money for the Confederate cause, the difficulties on the home front later in the war, maintaining uh, Tara, the the family plantation, 
the wonderful scene in the hospital midway through the movie that includes this wonderful shot of uh, thousands of Confederates lying uh, along the railroad uh, and train station in Atlanta, I believe, uh, waiting to be you know, taken care of in the hospital. And uh, I think these are moments that, uh, that you can use as springboards uh, for discussing some of these more historical topics like mobilization. Shenandoah takes you right into the middle of the civil rights movement, a very different movie uh, set in Virginia in 1864. It came out in 1965, right after, right around the time of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Uh, very different perspective when it comes to slavery. Obviously, um, if you read the publications at the time, popular publications, many references to the 100th anniversary of the Civil War. Uh, for African Americans, it's, um, it's a war that perhaps hasn't ended uh, given the struggles on the civil rights front. And I wanted my students to see that movie as a product of the mid-1960s. And so here you have a family that's debating, uh, a plantation family that doesn't own slaves, doesn't believe that slavery is even moral. There are six young strapping boys, uh, the sons of Charlie Anderson. None of them have been picked up by the Confederate Conscription Act at this point, which of course is uh, hard to believe. But that movie also uh, focuses on the trials of of, of home front life uh, uh, during the Civil War. And it also introduces a very strong emancipationist theme. There is a, a young slave from a neighboring plantation named Gabriel, uh, who, is, uh, who eventually ends up in the Union Army. Uh, he is uh, freed by black soldiers in the Shenandoah Valley, although there were no black soldiers uh, serving in the valley, but uh, he ends up in the Army. And so here you have a case of... Um, of a movie that reflects a very different, um, we're a changing uh, national narrative of the Civil War that only will continue to do so during the 1970s. Kevin, it, it strikes me uh, on, on hearing you talk about Shenandoah that you're talking about the film and its relation to history in a way that's slightly different from some of the history and Hollywood conversations we sometimes hear, which which can revolve around the question of how accurate is the movie. And in a sense, what it seems to me what you're saying is that the, the, ina the very inaccuracies of the film are telling about the, the context in which it was made. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I, I don't want my students to necessarily get hung up on what's right, what's historically accurate, and what's not. Because I think that, uh, that misses the point of a Hollywood movie. It, I think we have to understand that producers, directors are not necessarily in the business of, uh, of making uh, movies that reflect uh, history uh, to a high degree. Obviously, there are movies that do that better than others. But I think where we can help students is in training them to understand uh, or understand, of course, what the, the, the cultural background of these movies and, and as a springboard for perhaps more sophisticated discussions about, uh, about the underlying history. Similarly, in your discussion of glory uh, in, in the article, you refer to the simplistic moral lessons that the film teaches and, and sort of draw out some very interesting analysis about what, you know, what is included and what's excluded from the movie. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, glory, I think, is the one exception to my general rule of, of using short segments of movies. I, I do my best to show that movie in its in its. In in its entirety for a number of reasons. Uh, first, I think it's just, a, it's just a wonderfully entertaining movie that touches on a subject that in 1989, and even to a certain extent today, 
a subject or an aspect of the Civil War that, that not enough people uh, really understand, and that, of course, is the recruitment of, um, of black soldiers into the United States Army. And, and that is by far my favorite movie because of the history that it addresses. But it's also a movie that reflects perhaps where the country was in 1989 and perhaps even uh, where it still is today. Uh, the movie essentially tells a, a sort of a celebratory story of United States color troops. It's, um, it's essentially a story of the Colonel of 54th Massachusetts, Robert Gould Shaw, played by Matthew Broderick, sort of coming to terms with uh, some of his assumptions about about the abilities of black soldiers. Um, it's, it's a story about overcoming uh, racial prejudice within the unit itself, uh, among the, the soldiers in the 54th, among soldiers generally in the US Army, and all coming together by the end of this movie against the Confederacy. I mean, the Confederacy, of course, they're the bad guys. And I think that movie has a great deal of value because it, it takes that focus. But it also misses quite a bit in, in terms of the history of the 54th Massachusetts. The movie ends, of course, with the failed assault at Battery Wagner in July of 1863. Ends with these, uh, the scenes of Shaw being buried with his men uh, on the beach. What the movie doesn't address is, um, is the history of the 54th Massachusetts after the fight, uh, the failed assault at Battery Wagner. And that history might be just as important, if not more important, than the actual assault, uh, because it addresses the discrimination within the United States Army over unequal pay. And this is a fight that these men and others, uh, other soldiers and other units, uh, will continue through the summer of 1864. And it gets to the point where a, a, a small number of soldiers are actually uh, executed for insubordination and other infractions. Uh, they're finally awarded equal pay by uh, the Congress in the summer of 64. But that, it seems to me, is a story that, that needs to be told. Uh, and it, I think, broadens our understanding of the racial challenges uh, of, of the Civil War era. Uh, these soldiers were not just fighting for their freedom against the Confederacy, but they were also fighting for respect and civil rights from their own government. And I think when you when you take that focus, when you, when you focus it on it in that way, it makes it easier to connect the history of these men to the rest of the United States history. It becomes part of this, I think, a broader, a much broader uh, civil rights movement. And so that's an opportunity that's lost. But uh, just to sort of finish by saying, perhaps that's the only narrative uh, that could have been told in 1989. And perhaps we will get a more complex story in the future, but that has yet to be seen. So the film does deal with the the pay crisis, with this fight over discrimination, but it does it in a way that's somewhat misleading. Is that right? I I think that's right. It, it's a it's a very brief scene in which uh, the men are told they're about to they're lining up for their pay, and they're told uh, the announcement comes from Shaw, who informs the men uh, that they will be paid less than white soldiers, and. Uh, the men in the ranks begin to tear up their pay vouchers, and Shaw eventually tears up his. And I think the way that scene is used is to, it's used as uh, part of this uh, narrative of Shaw becoming closer to his men, uh, rather than fully addressing the nature of this discrimination and the history of that discrimination over time. So when you teach these films, uh, as you talk about in the article, you not only 
have the students watch film clips and discuss the film clips with them, but you also sort of pair the films with various documents to get them to think more deeply. Can you talk, maybe give an example of how you do that? Well, they're always uh, in one form or another are going to write some kind of movie review. And that might be uh, a comparison of the movie clips or the full movie with those primary sources. It might be a review that tracks specific characters over time to see how they change it might be a review that uh, asks them to reflect on why directors or you know, why the people who are responsible for these movies, uh, why they made the decisions that they made, given perhaps the time in which they were made and with the broader history in mind. So there are any, any number of options that I, that I give my students uh, when they evaluate these movies. I really want them to, to be creative in, um, in how they evaluate them. And so I give them as much, uh, as much leeway as possible. Quite often it's, it's comparing the movies themselves. It's sort of comparing the presentation of, of slavery in Gone with the Wind uh, with Shenandoah or some other uh, movie that we're, we're watching uh, just to see what they're going to make of it. And I think in doing it this way, uh, you're, you're giving them a skill that they can use to evaluate other cultural texts, not just movies. When you think about your decade or so of teaching at St. Anne's Belfield School in Charlottesville, Virginia, working with high school students to understand the American Civil War, are there some experiences in the classroom that stand out to you? Not so much a specific moment, but um, I contemplated teaching a class that focused on Civil War memory. And I wasn't quite sure how that would go over on, you know, among high school students, but I thought I would give it a shot. And, um, you know, we used David Blight's Race and Reunion. We used, um, I mean, we used quite a number of books that you would find in a college classroom. And it, it, was, a, a, it was an incredibly rewarding experience, I think, on, on both ends. It was a class that allowed me to take the kids to any number of sites, uh, non-traditional sites throughout Virginia, like Hollywood Cemetery or Monument Avenue, both in Richmond, of course. Uh, and even in our own backyard uh, to places that are commemorative landscapes to Confederate leaders and to sort of begin to see if the extent to which they they connect to these landscapes and, and begin to see histories around them and and why we have a need as a community to remember the past, to commemorate it. And, and that was, uh, was a much more, I think it, it sort of harkened back to my my days in teaching philosophy it was a much more reflective type of course. But by the end of it, it was, uh, I, I taught it a number of times. So it was incredibly successful. It was, uh, it was a great group of kids. So one of my favorite courses by far. What kinds of perspectives on the Civil War did your students bring into class? Well, definitely perspectives that I had not anticipated. I guess uh, growing up in New Jersey, uh, you, I guess, just assume that you're going to get a certain amount of um, lost cause enthusiasm. And, and that's just not the case. I think in part, Charlottesville is very much a university town. People come and go. Uh, many of them are from out of state. Um, m- more of my local students, uh, kids who grew up in the area around, around Charlottesville, the surrounding counties, uh, definitely brought in more of that traditionalist or traditional view. Uh, but I was surprised by, uh, dare I say, how modern they are in their, in their thinking. They're not, they're not hung up with, with the past. They don't come at it with a need to defend anything. 
And that's actually, uh, that can be a very liberating experience when you're teaching uh, the Civil War, because you want to be able to sort of explore various narratives and have them consider as many perspectives as possible. So you mentioned that one of the reasons you went back to get a master's degree in history is to be able to to work on uh, further scholarship on the Civil War. And as we mentioned, your book on the Battle of the Crater is about to come out, Remembering the Battle of the Crater, War as Murder. I wanted to ask you a little bit about it. Um, it pays quite a bit of attention to the popular memory of, of the Battle of Petersburg with attention to race and the significance of participation by African-American troops. Maybe we could just start with uh, a very short summary of uh, the battle and uh, its significance. Well, the battle took place uh, July 30th, 1864, uh, just outside of Petersburg, Virginia. This is coming off of uh, the Overland Campaign in May of 1864, that bloody series of battles between uh, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia. And by June of 64, both armies are basically digging complex chains of earthworks uh, from Richmond down through Petersburg and eventually uh, around Petersburg off to the west. And at one point, in, at the, by the end of June, uh, there's one point in the, uh, uh, between the two armies, they're only a few hundred yards apart, and there are some miners uh, from Pennsylvania and in the 48th Pennsylvania. And they, they believe that they can actually tunnel under the Confederate position that juts out from the rest of the Confederate line. And perhaps, um, you know, once they've dug under it, uh, lay explosives and um, obviously blow it up and hopefully follow it up with a massive offensive that will split Lee's army and perhaps bring an end to the war. And so this has run up the chain of command. It's eventually approved and by the end of July, uh, the mine shaft is completed about 500 feet in length, and the Union High Command puts together a plan that at first utilizes an entire division of black soldiers. And these are men that have really not seen action up to this point. Black soldiers in Virginia have only seen sporadic fighting. So this is going to be their first opportunity. They're very enthusiastic about it. Uh, but at the last minute, George Gordon Meade decides to remove them from uh, leading the attack, and they end up in a supporting role. But uh, on the early morning of July 30th, uh, the explosion does take place, a massive explosion, and three white divisions go in before these black soldiers. And for a time, up until about 9 a.m., it looks as if uh, there's still a chance that the Union Army might break through. But there is, um, around that time, uh, a brigade under the command of William Mahone uh, arrives on the scene and is able to thwart this offensive. And by early afternoon, Union soldiers are basically occupying just the perimeter of the crater itself and eventually are forced back altogether. But what I was interested specifically in was just the role of these black soldiers, uh, their experience in the battle, but even more, even more so, the responses of Confederate soldiers. It's best known for uh, the fact that upwards of 200 black soldiers were massacred after they were captured. So maybe a few of them during the battle, but the vast majority, it looks like, uh, after the battle. And I was sort of interested in uh, Confederate perceptions of, um, of what it was like to fight uh, black soldiers for the first time and what it meant uh, in terms of their cause. 
And, uh, and then, of course, it, it moves beyond the war itself to how the battle has been remembered at various points in time. How, how has the popular memory of this battle changed over, you know, over 150 years? Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at the letters and diaries of Confederate soldiers in the immediate wake of the battle, they talk about nothing but uh, the experience of fighting these soldiers. Um, it, it, had a, it, it had an impact on, on their view of the war. I think it solidified for them what the war was about. This is, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is the first time uh, since the spring-summer of 1862 that the Army of uh, Northern Virginia is defending a significant civilian population. And so all the horrors associated with black, uh, associated with black men or armed black men uh, are present um, during this battle. They really see themselves as, as sort of defending their homes, the Confederacy itself, from these black men. And I think it solidifies for them just what the war is about and just what's at stake uh, if they lose. And so when you read their letters, they openly talk about the massacre of these men. They relish in their accounts of the violence uh, that's um, that these men experience, and they're proud of it. It was justified. They viewed this as, I think, nothing less than a slave rebellion. Uh, many of the men, especially in Mahone's uh, unit, were raised in the Petersburg area. Mahone himself is from was from Southampton County, of course, where Nat Turner's rebellion took place. So I think all of this uh, is in the background. After the war, I think what's what's interesting, and of course you can read this in any number of books about Civil War memory, uh, what's interesting about uh, the racial aspect of the battle is what's forgotten. And at least among white Southerners, and especially among the veterans who remain in the Petersburg area, at least Mahone's veterans, um, they remember a battle, uh, they remember, I think, a battle that represents their final decisive victory, you know, in the, during the campaign, the 1864-65 campaign. And at least in public, uh, when they're engaged in reunions with Union soldiers who come down to Petersburg, or even uh, when they're reenacting the battle, and two major reenactments of the battle took place, one in 1903 and then one in 1937. In terms of the public side of things, you really won't find much in terms of references to black soldiers. Uh, this, is a, this is an opportunity for, uh, I think, white soldiers to celebrate, Confederate soldiers to celebrate their lost cause, to share these stories with the next generation coming up. But it's not an opportunity at the height of Jim Crow to talk about the exploits of black soldiers. And of course, it's not an opportunity to talk about uh, black soldiers as freedom fighters. In contrast, in their private correspondence, a very different uh, narrative takes shape. They really can't forget the experience of fighting these men. Even uh, 40 years later, uh, I found uh, a number of accounts of uh, men who continue to write about the experience as if they had just finished fighting the battle. I, I was surprised by that contrast. Among Black Americans, uh, specifically Black Southerners in the Petersburg area, they never forgot the experience or the story of, of the crater. And it comes out in um, various public ceremonies. Black militia units constantly reference the crater. But that's the extent of it. It's a very local memory. It's nothing that sort of filters into the broader national memory, which by the early 20th century had become a narrative of, of lost cause, race and, uh, of reconciliation and reunion. There was really no place for uh, a, a sort of an emancipationist uh, narrative of the war. 
And that really holds true through the 1960s. And you really begin to see a change during the civil rights movement. Uh, Black Americans become much more aggressive in uh, talking about the Civil War, talking about the Civil War um, as a moment of liberation, uh, self-liberation, the courage uh, and service of Black soldiers really begins to come back into the public discussion. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to to make an impact into the 1970s. And to, to today, uh, where you have, I think, the National Park Service in Petersburg really working hard to, to uh, integrate uh, this story into their interpretation of, of the site itself. When I look on your Civil War memory blog, of course, I see a lot of very lively discussion that in many ways comes out of this, this change in perspective that you've just been, been describing. And uh, I'm sure that your book will get lots of attention, although I think right now probably most people know you best as a Civil War blogger. And I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you got into that business and also what you think about some of the discussion that's gone on sort of pro and con about the the appropriateness even of of historical blogging. So I started blogging in in November of 2005. I had just finished uh, my my master's thesis at the University of Richmond. I graduated. I was interested in continuing I was interested in finding some way to continue to share my interest in in history. I mean I had the classroom of course. But I had discovered a few blogs um, of various quality, and I thought blogging might be a way for me to continue to engage people and share my interest in, in Civil War history. And specifically, you know, those issues like memory that are, I think, probably find more of a home in, in a college classroom rather than on a blog. And so I wanted to find a way to share this more abstract side of the war, more theoretical side of the war with a broader audience. And so I decided to give it a shot, not really knowing what to expect. And I think you can see that in, in, in my early blog posts. But within a year, I would say, I had somehow um, amassed a fairly large audience. And I, what I mean by large audience, maybe a few hundred people uh, you know, showed up each day to read. Uh, and that continued to evolve and uh, to the point where, uh, you know, I had academic historians, public historians of various stripes, um, a wide spectrum of Civil War enthusiasts, history teachers. Uh, I was blogging quite a bit about uh, what I do in the classroom, and, and that seemed to resonate with, um, with, my, with my colleagues in other, in other schools. And so I found it to be an incredibly rewarding uh, experience, and it put me in touch with uh, with a whole new community. And that's sort of how I've used social media, you know, throughout this time uh, as a way to to network. And I found people asking me to give talks, offers to contribute to, you know, various um, collections for publication. And it, it sort of put me on the map. And, you know, eventually it, it led to a, a book contract. So, Civil War blogging, I guess you could say, has been, has been very, very good to me. I, in terms of controversy, I'm not sure I, I think there really is a debate. Or if there is a debate, it's a, it's a debate that really sort of falls along generational lines. You know, I think, and I think oftentimes we get caught up with blogging. It seems to me the interesting questions are how we as historians, and I mean, you know, academic historians, public historians, teachers, 
how we can use social media, digital technology creatively to engage our students and and perhaps even engage the general public. So I, I guess in that widest sense, I consider myself to be a, a public historian. But it seems to me that, that the train has left the station. Uh, if you go to, for example, the History News Network, they have a, a blog role uh, that you could spend the next year uh, exploring. Um, and most of them are, are academics um, within the field of history who are blogging. So I think, especially among the younger generation, I don't think there really is a debate. I mean, there are issues of uh, the usefulness of blogging, uh, you know, what you can do with it. But as far as how these digital tools, whether these digital to- tools ought to be utilized, I think that's a discussion that is that is played out. Uh, at, at least it, it is for me. The nice thing about, about this technology is you can really do with it what you want. And so there's a lot of freedom involved. And I, I, I will just say this. I, I do think, what I, I guess what I would like to see more of is how this technology has changed how the general public consumes history. Uh, and I, you know, I've seen this firsthand uh, with my interest in the whole Black Confederate debate. Uh, you know, this debate about uh, if you go to any number of websites, uh, people talking about upwards of 100,000 slaves fighting as soldiers in the Confederate Army, which, of course, is utter nonsense uh, if you know the, the history. But when we're talking about the Internet uh, and if you're not equipped to properly navigate it, uh, then that can be a real landmine. And I see it sometimes in my students. Uh, we saw it in 2010 in Virginia with a fourth grade textbook that included uh, a reference to a couple thousand slaves or black men fighting in Stonewall Jackson's army. Um, the woman who wrote it turned out all she did was a Google search and she came across websites that, uh, that she used without any kind of assessment. So I think with the, the, the inclusion of, of the Internet and digital tools, within our classrooms comes a great deal of responsibility. And I'd like to see historians do more to educate the public, at least in the context of history, on what it is that historians do and perhaps how to more effectively navigate the website in order to notice what's reliable and what's not reliable. Kevin, now that you've finished the book, what's your next project? Well, I am uh, sort of working on what I hope will be a book-length project on the history or memory of uh, the loyal slave, uh, the loyal slave narrative, which is uh, in more recent years is the narrative that has morphed into the black Confederate soldier narrative. And so I'm working on, working on a number of smaller projects uh, related to this that I hope will um, over time turn into uh, a book. Um, so we'll have, to, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. Kevin, I wanted to thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Carl. The Organization of American Historians holds several events each year for researchers and educators in American history. To learn more about the OAH Annual Meeting, the OAH Community College Workshop, and other ways to connect with researchers and educators, visit the OAH website at www.oah.org meetings.